So before we start talking more about desire, I really do want to ask um, if there are some more questions. I heard somebody just try to chime in. That was me. Yeah, go ahead, Kathy. I, I, I wrote several things down just now, and I want to make sure I didn't mix up my terms. Can I read like three sentences to you? Okay. So I wrote, when love occurs at the level of care, this is the seed of desire. The demand for love is the origin of desire, but this gets twisted into a desire for recognition, validation, et cetera. Well done. It, okay. Yep. Yeah. That is precisely what happens. And I, I now want to tell you how I think that occurs. Reading Lacan all these years, here's how I think this is happening. Whether you find this useful or not, you at least find it interesting. Initially, what the child wants is simple. It's the primary caregiver. I want them to come and like take care of my ass. If they want anything, they want the primary caregiver. I would suggest that this is the first flourish of desire. It is desire for another. And as you write this down, desire for another, underline the for part, because I'm gonna replace that term with two others to show you how we get to Lacan's major claim that all human desire is desire as another. And we start entering into something a little more um, relevant to adolescent and adult experience. So does this maybe connect back to what Nick was asking about, about the, the lost object or the lack in the other, in that that becomes adopted by the subject as their own lack, and that's how they seek appreciation? Yes, we're getting there. We're getting there. Don't rush it. Okay. I'm just, I've been grappling with that, and it that's the connection that I needed, so thank you. It's a, good, it's a good one to have. And I think what I wanna do to try and explain some of this is to recall some other stuff here. There's some modeling in Lacan that is not present in this essay. And I usually try and stick pretty close to the text in front of us because I wanna, I wanna show you as much as possible that I'm not just producing this out of, um, out of a hat. But in this case, it's actually quite relevant to have some different modeling going on. So initially what you have is you have a child in relationship to a primary caregiver. Here's the child down here, here's the primary caregiver. And the child's desire for the primary caregiver is really a desire for their affection, for their care, or their attention at the level of care. So you can see the child very much oriented towards the primary caregiver. Kids, as we know, have extremely good perceptual apparatuses. They can see well, they can hear well. Their seeing and their hearing far outpaces their gross and fine motor skills. So you can have a kid who really can't even walk, much less crawl, but has a very acute ability to observe what's around them and to hear with great clarity. And one of the things, one of the first things that a child notices 
is that they are not the only object of interest to the parent. Now, initially things were a little bit wild. The kid doesn't know what to do with this. The parent holds up a flat little black thing, looks at it and smiles. The kid is like, what's so interesting about the flat little black thing, daddy, mommy, primary caregiver? Kids love putting phones in toilets. They love putting phones down their diapers. They also love car keys. And it's not because they jingle. I'd like to suggest that the reason why the child is drawn to the primary caregiver's car keys is not because they jingle, but because the car keys symbolize or signal the primary caregiver's departure. To hear the keys is to signal to the child that the primary caregiver is about to leave. So keys are also on the list of weird, totally invaluable things that kids love to put in the trash can, never to be seen again. Kids like taking things out of drawers and they love putting things in them. And it's always the most valuable shit in your life, apparently. Your phone and your keys have been flushed down the toilet. And the kid is like, didn't I do good? I took the piece of shit that leads you through the world and I put it in the toilet where it belongs. Didn't I give you a gift of shit? Aren't you going to clap now and give me a sucker? You see? Money, capital, the phone, the car keys. These are all the gifts of shit that the child sees so clearly the truth of. They belong in the toilet with the rest of it. They know in a way that we can't. Now that might be overstepping a little bit. My point is that the child in a way that they can't fully grasp oftentimes is able to look at the adult and see their attention diverted elsewhere. It could be on like meal preparation. It could be on working on stuff. It could be at the level of a desk or paperwork. It could be at the level of a frown or a sigh that the child when they get older then says, what's wrong, mommy? What's wrong, daddy? And you have to say, oh, nothing. It's just grown up stuff. What they see though, is your attention divided. The term for this kind of imaginary object, because the child has no idea what the black flat box does. All they know is that it garners the primary caregiver's attention. That's all they know. So it's an imaginary object. Lacan symbolizes this in the algebra with the lowercase phi. This is what technically we refer to as the imaginary phallus. In yet another extremely unfortunately anatomical choice of terms. I can't even believe this guy kept doing it. It's like, bro, you got castration through the door and now you're gonna start talking about phalluses? He was just asking for trouble, man. What he was doing though, was I would suggest provoking one of the most impressive appropriations of Lacanian psychoanalysis which was the feminist responses of Lucy Rigore and Helene Sissou, not least of which beyond them would be Julia Kristeva. He invited that. That was his great hope, which is why he ends so many of his later year seminars talking about so-called feminine sexuality. He knew who the inheritors of his thought were. They were 1970s and 80s feminists. I don't think he got the intended equipment um, effect that he wanted, but nevertheless, that's who he was after. 
So back to this model. The child has desire for the primary caregiver. But what they see is that the primary caregiver doesn't just strictly reciprocate that desire, but also has divided attention. The primary caregiver is also drawn to something else, something that the child can only really imagine. Another object that from the child's point of view is an imaginary one. They don't know what the phone is about. They don't know where daddy or mommy or the primary caregiver goes when they take the jingly jingles and walk out the door and start the motory motor and all that stuff. They don't know. They can only imagine. All they know is your ass is gone. You are checked out when you're standing in front of that phone. You are not present when you are in the car and gone. So when the child approaches these objects, the child is looking at them from the vantage point of the primary caregiver and knows that if they can simply grasp these objects, possess them by shoving them down their diaper, that maybe mommy or daddy will just focus on me. If I hide daddy's car keys, maybe he won't leave today. If I take the phone and put it in my diaper, I'm the phone. And that means their attention has to be on me. I'm not saying little kids are like conspiring about all this shit. I'm just saying this is one way to interpret what they're up to. This process begins in a kind of antagonism, a kind of jealousy. The child is first jealous of the other object that has the primary caregiver's attention, according to Lacan. After a while, they realize that they're impotent to contest the other object. And so like everybody who realizes that they can't beat them, the child decides to join them instead. So this passage from antagonism to identification is absolutely crucial here. The child now thinks that if it can just identify with whatever it is the primary caregiver also desires, then the child will in turn get their desire for the primary caregiver met. Is that clear? That was wordy, I know. Can you run it back? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> the child suspects that if they can identify with what the primary caregiver also desires, then the child can have their desire for the primary caregiver met. Because if the phone is in the child's diaper, now the primary caregiver doesn't have isolated access to the phone apart from the child. You see? So you create an identification between these two elements and the child gets the parent's attention. And that's oftentimes what happens, by the way. The parent is busy doing all this other stuff and the child grabs something of value and runs down the hallway and the parent's like, hey, wait a minute, where are you going? Give me that, give me that, you get it, I'll play with it, I'll play with it. The child's like, fuck you, man, at least I got your attention. That happens on a regular basis, it's quite a normal thing. For us though, I wanna notice how our terms shift. In order for the child to have its desire for the primary caregiver met, it has to identify with the desire of the primary caregiver. It's a shift from the desire for another to appropriating the desire of another. The child doesn't find your car keys inherently interesting. That's what I'm arguing here. It's not because they jingle that the child is drawn to them. 
They are drawn to your car keys because what those car keys signal to them about you and your comings and goings. They're drawn to your phone, not because phones are inherently fascinating to babies. They're drawn to your phone because they see it amusing you and they want that attention. So the idea here is that the child identifies with the imaginary object by shoving it in their diaper, but also by trying to be like that. You see, a child can just as easily be sitting on the couch with a primary caregiver and watching TV and an image pops up and the, and the parent says, oh, wow, isn't that an impressive dress? The child looks at that and says, okay, that meets the parent's approval. I'm gonna wanna dress like that. I get a dress like that, I'm gonna get that kind of approval. The logic isn't more complicated than that. It's not complicated at all. In order to have the desire for the primary caregiver met, the child learns that they have to appropriate and accept for themselves what others want. The shift is now from desire for another to the desire of another. Now, if you think this is just about child development, I'm not doing my job here. Because think about it this way. You're in high school. You've got your first crush. And you know they're into a very particular band. I don't know why I'm whispering, but we're just going to go with it. You know they're into a very particular band. You don't really like that kind of music, but you really do want them to notice you. So what you do is you go on eBay and you get one of that band's t-shirts and you wear it on the day when you know you're gonna run into that person in a homeroom or whatever the case may be. And you know, or at least you suspect that if you identify yourself with something that you know this other person really likes, that they are in turn going to like you. And they're like, whoa, I didn't know you listened to X. And then you say some dumb ass shit, you're like, yeah, I'm one of their biggest fans. Or yeah, I've been listening to them. I saw their first show, blah, blah, blah. And then you're in some sort of heated competition about who's the OG fan and so forth. This logic goes on and on and on. I would even suggest that when you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror to get dressed, you're playing the same damn game. You're not asking yourself, do I like these pants? You're asking yourself, do these pants make my ass look big? or small, or broken, or busted. The missing part from that question is from the vantage point of another, because that's what the mirror gives you. The mirror gives you and allows you to inhabit the position of another and to decide on your own desirability based on that perspective taking. That's what we're up to here. This is a logic of desire that pervades human experience. It's about always judging yourself and your attractability, your attractiveness based on what you think others want. By identifying with and wearing the clothes that you think, having the haircut that you think, and all this stuff, you make all the moves that you think other people find attractive in order to have your desire for them met. And let me just remind you, your desire for them is founded on a basic insatiable demand for love. And you can see the profound dilemma that this causes because now what you are taught in this process 
is that the best way for you to be loved is to become something other than yourself. You're only lovable insofar as you perform differently based on somebody else's perspective. Problems arise in this regard. Desire for gets sublated or um, reconciled in desire of. But my point about the mirror is that the only way to properly determine the desire of another is to try and view the world from their perspective, which is the third displacement, desire as another, which is what the mirror allows you to do. It allows you to see yourself from their perspective and ask the question, am I closely enough identified with what society wants from me to be attractive, to be lovable? Desire for, sublated in desire of, and achieved through desire as another. Can you say that one more time? Desire for, sublated in desire of, and what's the last one? Yeah. How did I put it? What's the best way? I don't know. <laughs> you got to say it again and say it better. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, yeah. I was hoping I could get you to do that. Yeah, I mean, the idea is that you would have to take the perspective of another in order to determine what they desire. You have to start seeing the world as another from their point of view. Yeah. Cool, thanks. Good. Where are we at so far with this? If you want me to add some more terms, the primary caregiver is what Lacan's gonna call, and this is probably gonna piss you all off, the maternal function. Not because it's done by a mommy. It's a function that anybody can play. If you have ears to hear this, if you've done your Freudian homework, this is like a pre-edipal phase that we're describing here. Which only really leaves, right, the paternal function. How does that fit in? Where does that come into play? When you're ready, we'll go there. It's 4.30, we're in our last hour. What else is on your mind? What other questions can we answer as we get into desire? We're about ready to read some passages from this book. I say four, John. Okay, great. Open your books then to page 690. The action really starts at the bottom of 689. <clears throat> In fact, maybe that's the way to do this. Let's start at the bottom of 689 in the French. Can you give, us, give, us, can yeah. give us the other page numbers. Yes, the French is 814. The English in the, in the book is 689. And the paragraph begins, for it is clear here. Everybody got it? Yeah. 
where it is clear here that man's continued nascence. Do you know what that means? It means ignorance. Don't forget where we started today. And don't forget this strange interlude that began our afternoon session. Don't forget the centrality that ignorance has played in our work today. Don't forget what we're actually talking about here. It's only by reducing truth to ignorance that knowledge can have his day. For it is clear here that man's continued ignorance of his desire is not so much ignorance of what he demands. Don't forget, my brother can get the list out. He'll tell you exactly what he demands. And I've told you that there's something more profound going on. What we demand is love, which may after all be isolated as ignorance of whence he desires. Note the shift here. What you demand is a red herring. We know the answer to that question. The new question is where, from where do you desire? The answer is with the little dot down at the bottom. Desire originates in the big other, in society. And that's what this all-important page 690 gives us. If you read on, he starts messing around with language, not surprisingly there. Page 690, here now we are still on page 814 of the French, just right at the bottom. But we must also add that man's desire is the other's desire. And Bruce, to his credit, his great credit here, he's left in the French so that you can really kind of take stock of what Lacan is doing here with the day, the DE, in which the day provides what grammarians call a subjective determination, namely that it is qua other or as other that man desires. Here, what we're getting at is the technical passages in which Lacan is trying to explain the desire for, of, and as another that I just walked you through. This is why the other's question that comes back to the subject from the place from which he expects an oracular reply, which takes some form of chevoir, what do you want, is the question that leads, that best leads the subject on the path of his own desire assuming that thanks to the know-how of a partner known as a psychoanalyst, he takes up that question even without knowing it in the following form. What does he want from me? You've also heard me allude to this passage as well. The initial curiosity of the analyzand should be directed at you, according to Lacan, at the analyst. And the question that they should have is, what do they want from me? And then the art of analysis, according to Lacan, is to turn that curiosity back toward the analyzand. So that the question Chevois is now addressed not to the analyst, but to some other scene in the analyzand, some other voice. 
read here the enunciating subject, which we've talked about. We're almost ready to transition to fantasy, but I wanna spend a little bit more time working on this question. What do you want? Because that's part of what we're seeing working itself out here. The child is effectively looking at the primary caregiver and realizing that they want something other than the child. And so the child is left to imagine, what is it that the primary caregiver wants? What do you want? Tell me what it is so I can go get it so that you can then love me. Notice how the roles are reversed here. Initially, the child learns about love by other people bringing them stuff. Now the child is asking, what do you want so that I can go get it in order to bring you near to me? Very interesting game of fetch happening here. I'm just scanning around here, looking at notes, looking at some of these diagrams that we've worked on. <clears throat> I think we're good so far. Maybe it's worth taking a little more focused approach on desire. On what I told you earlier was the difference between the question of what and the question of why. The easiest and unfortunately the most incorrect response that scholars have had to Lacanian theories of desire is to focus on the what question. What is it that you desire? Far more important I'd like to suggest is the why question. It's not a question about what you desire, not what is your desire oriented towards. It's a question about why you desire that in particular. It's a question of cause. The answer to the question of why is an answer to the question, what causes desire? Now I've told you that desire takes root in the demand for love, the insatiable demand for love. Insatiable because we can never have enough, which is to say we're always lacking or deficient in the field of love which puts us on the path here. I've also told you today that the basic cause of desire is lack. And it doesn't need to be more complicated. I don't know why people make this so difficult. It's simply that you can't want it if you already feel like you have it. Technically speaking, you can't desire something that you have. Desire doesn't work that way. Desire is only caused by lack. You can only desire things that you feel like you do not have. In other words, things that you lack. The answer to the question of what I said gets twisted from a demand for love to a desire for recognition, for acknowledgement, for approval from others. And I hope that at this point, I've shown you how that's the case. In the shift from desire for, to desire of, to desire as, you can see that what the child 
turned adolescent, turned adult fundamentally longs for, what they fundamentally desire is the approval of others. But in order to figure out how to get that approval, they have to desire themselves as others, which is to say from other people's points of view. You see how that logic works together? The what question always suggests a desire for recognition. What we want is always a desire for recognition, to be seen a certain way. This is the underlying motivational structure for the grammatical subject, for that selfie that you posted online this morning of you having that epic meal. You want to be seen a certain way. We all do. It's fundamentally a desire for recognition. So no matter what it is you want, the new house, the new car, the better X, the faster Y, it is always fundamentally at root a desire for recognition. By possessing that object and showing that you have it, you can garner the recognition, approval, and love of others. That is not the same as recognizing your desire. The question of why puts you on a different path. Not a desire for recognition, but a fundamental curiosity about your own desire. When you ask the question of why, why do I want that in particular, that particular thing, that car, that type of a partner, that education? Why on earth do you actually wanna be a doctor? You've already seen, I'm a doctor and look how ignorant I am. You don't get anything by being a doctor. You're already a healer, why you gotta be a doctor too? Let somebody else do that stuff. A doctor, we don't need that, come on. The idea here though is that for desire, when you ask the question of why, what was it that drew you to this? Why are you here right now in this seminar? Why are you here? It puts you on a different path, a path towards the recognition of desire. Not a desire for recognition, but a recognition of your desire. And that's different. So don't get trapped in answering the question what your patient wants, because they'll tell you till they're blue in the face about all the shit they want. The proper question, the question to which desire is a defense is why. Why that? And why tell me about it now? Chevoir. What do you want? You ever see coming to America? It's back but the original, you know the original where Eddie Murphy's character is about to get married? He says, what do you want? She's like, whatever you want. Well, what kind of music do you like? Whatever kind of music you like. What kind of food do you like? Whatever kind of food you like. It's a very odd thing, but it's precisely what happens. What do you feel like having for dinner tonight? I don't know, what do you feel like? If you think about it, it's a very casual way of going about this. 
The question shevwa, what do you want, is oftentimes met with the response equally questioning, whatever you want, obviously in order for you to then receive their desire and affection. This move is called fantasy. And the way we write it is the way you see it in the completed graph. There's you as a split subject, uncertain, trying to guess what it is the other wants. So here the imaginary phallus has been replaced by something else. This notorious italicized little a. This is fantasy. Fantasy is what becomes of the desire for recognition. If the analyst is unable to put the patient on the path toward the recognition of their desire. Fantasy is what becomes of desire for recognition if the analyst fails to put the analyzand on the path toward the recognition of their desire. Fantasy is like where desire hits the, hits the ground. Fantasy is an instantiation of desire. And it's exactly the kind of desire I've been describing to you. Desire for, of, and as another. It takes root, it manifests itself in terms of fantasy, which you can hear people saying all the time. Bruce Fink talks about a patient of his who came in one day and told him about um, a movie that they saw with a couple in there doing something or rather. And the person says, and I saw this, um, this person in the movie and I was, I was weirdly attracted to them but I really didn't like them. I didn't like the relationship that they were in. That's not the kind of relationship that I want for myself. No, sir, no, thank you. And Bruce says in that moment, he was tempted to ask the patient, well, what kind of relationship do you want? What kind of relationship are you into? Like what, let's talk about how we can get you what you want. And then he said, ah, he paused and realized the trap. The truth of what the subject had said was around their repulsion towards a particular subject. The trap that defends against the truth was to ask them, what is your fantasy? Tell me how you fantasize your life unfolding. What would be ideal? Tell me about your ideal partner. If you as a split subject could have anything to make your life whole again at the level of a partner, what would it be? That's the trap. The truth of it though came when they said, man, I was really repulsed by this figure. The better question Bruce says, and the one he put to the patient was, what about them disgusted you? What drew your attention to them and then had your attention transformed to disgust? That was the question that opened it up because it put the subject on a different path not the path of desire with what they want and their fantasy of a complete partnership, but instead on the path towards their enjoyment, towards their jouissance. Why did you have such a strong repulsion to that individual? Fuck what you want. Tell me about what you did in that moment, how you felt in that moment. A very different move. A very different question, a question of affect, 
not meaning. Jouissance, not fantasy. Demand and drive, not desire. <clears throat> the best way to translate fantasy is as a split subject living their life in relationship to what they think other people want. Now we could, as one of you requested, talk about this in the particular clinical cases of obsessional neurosis and the hysteric. I'm not opposed to that. I can tell you what Lacan says about that and how it works out. But I think we should fly a little bit higher. Just keep things a little bit more at the 30,000 foot range that we've been cruising at. Because when someone asks you, what do you want? You can certainly respond and say, I don't know, whatever you want. But you could also turn the question back to them and say, what do you want, right? Chevois meets with another Chevois. What do you want for dinner? What do you want for dinner? So you can easily turn the question back around and turn it into something different. What is it about you that makes you want to turn to me in search of answers? Is one way to read this response. It can also be the first step towards presenting your partner or your patient with some signifier of the fact that you are just as split and as incomplete as they are. I don't know what I want either is another way to put this. What do you want for dinner? The best answer, I don't know. What do you want out of a relationship? I don't know. The best answer when someone asks you what you want in this case, according to Lacan is, I don't know. I'm ignorant of my own desire. I don't know what I want. That ignorance is here represented above fantasy as a signifier of the fact that the other is lacking too. Now, I wanna just keep this dialogue going because it's a very common one, whether you're trying to figure out dinner plans or dealing with an extra desirous analyzand. Oftentimes, when someone asks you what you want, you can respond and say, I don't know. They in turn can respond in the dialogue and say, oh yes, you do, you're just not telling me. And now they're driven even deeper into imagining what it is you might want. Gosh, okay, well, let's see, let's see. You said you liked the pizza that I made last month. So maybe I'll try and do pizza again. The subject that is split never tires in the field of fantasy of trying to guess what it is other people want. They are never exhausted by that. And the worst thing you can do for a subject in that position is give them a straight answer. I wanna show you the difference between the two using the graph of desire. When desire gives way to fantasy and you meet with someone's fantasy, you can turn left. 
and you can provide them with an answer. You can play the omniscient being with all the answers who knows exactly what they want in life and dinner alike and tell them the meaning. The same way that the primary caregiver by showing up with a blanket in response to a cry determined the meaning of that cry in the field of language. The same move can happen in fantasy, which is why when you look at the completed graph, you can see that desire flows to fantasy. And from there, you can just turn south and wind up in this position. This is the person that has never been able to say to you they don't know. I know people like this. I'm an academic. The toughest thing for academics to say is, I don't know. Professors fetishize, and I use that term technically, knowledge. They get off on knowing. And they have a hard time saying, I don't know. But that is precisely what Lacan advocates. Because the other opportunity here is not to go south, but instead to turn north. When you meet somebody's fantasy, you can simply respond by showing them that you are just as split as they are. Because don't forget, where desire fundamentally starts is with split subjectivity, up through the big other to this little desire for, of, and as, that then finds instantiation at the level of relatively fixed fantasies, fantasies about the good life, if you could just get this. In capitalism, it tends to be like money. If I just had enough money. I saw a guy on a loan the other night. He said, I would die if I could provide my family with enough money to live. More important than him being a primary caregiver and his crew was a pile of money. Very interesting logic here. Fantasy takes root in all of these strange objects that we think if we just could get will be complete. In your case, it might be that doctorate. Usually though, in order for fantasy to serve its crutch-like purpose, it has to resort to the big other. And if you happen to instantiate the big other for somebody mired in fantasy, you are always gonna have these two choices, whether it's a partner or a patient. You can either play dumb or pretend like you're omniscient. Lacan's wager in all of this is the training of analysts. He knows that his stuff's getting appropriated and brought into like cultural critique and social theory and the like, but fundamentally he's trying to teach psychoanalysts how to respond to the fundamental fantasy that walks through their door every morning. His answer is always take the high road, play dumb, and never hesitate to show that part of you that you are incomplete. Because the alternative is to slide back down into the lower registers, which I would also suggest in the graph of desire are the lesser registers, the lesser registers. By assuming this position, by telling the subject that you don't know either, that you are just as split as them, it might just be enough 
for your partner or your patient or your child to be like, okay, I'm going to try and count on myself. What do I really want to do? If they really don't know, maybe it's my turn to decide. Maybe I need to make the call. That kind of, dare I say, self-sufficiency could be quite productive here. Because then if you still can't come up with the answer, you can just pick up a glass of tea and say, man, I don't know what the hell all this is about, but this tea tastes pretty damn good. It's a different way, only enabled by taking that northward path and showing the patient or your partner that you are as incomplete as they are. I would suggest too that if you look at graph three as it's unfolding, the Chevois graph, you'll see that there are two arrows, a top arrow and a lower arrow. I'd like to suggest that the lower arrow that points toward little a is that of the desire for recognition. It points at little a because it shows the subject banking on their ability to imagine, guess, approximate, and acquire whatever it is you want. The high road, as I put it, the second arrow, note where that points, not at the little a, but at the split subject. It points not to what you imagine other people want, but why it is you're desiring in the first place because you're split. Because the thing that orients your existence is a crack introduced by language, a splintering of you into two, a grammatical subject and an enunciating subject. So it's a good way to read graph three on page 690. The top arrow is that of the recognition of desire. And the bottom arrow is that of the desire for recognition. Now we've said a lot about that bottom arrow in the past hour or so. We haven't said a lot about the top. We're just starting to get there. So this might be part of where we're headed, but if the, if the other can, if there can be a lack in the other and it can appear qua split subject, right? then how do we say, and maybe this is the spiral loop of the whole thing, then how is it that we say, or we can say there is no other for the other? If they're split, how do they not have another? Lacan's point is that because the other has no other, if you wanna go down that road with him, and he wants us to, that's, what he's, that's how he's working it in here. And he's inviting us down that path. He says, the reason why there's this bar in the other is because there's no other of the other. Now he's making that move. And if we go with him, what he's saying there is that what's lacking from the big other is anything like a big other into which the big other can be included and submerged. That's one way to read this. There is no other of the other, which means that the big other, if it is truly totalizing and complete, the way that I've described this big A in the circle, as the treasure trove, the collection of every word in the dictionary. What can't be included in that dictionary? According to Lacan, it would be like dictionariness itself. 
that kind of stuff. He starts getting a little mystical here. I think there's a much cleaner and easier way to do this. I don't think that his no other of the other thing is as productive as he wants it to be. Here's what I would like to suggest. Recall what I told you about the no of potty training. The no that says I need you to stop crying and use your words. Prohibition, castration, alienation, that process that we discussed. I've told you how that functions. The no of the primary caregiver functions as prohibition. And I've told you what it is aimed at, what it prohibits. It prohibits any continuance of life without prohibition. That's fundamentally what the no is aimed at. In the case of society though, what exactly is prohibited? Because the basis for society is the law and the structure of the law is prohibition. What is the fundamental thou shalt not that props up Western society? And this is a cleaner way to get out this barred other. It is fundamentally a prohibition against enjoyment. Whatever it is, jouissance is the negative one. It's the missing signifier that cannot appear in the big other. The big other, society, law, the symbolic, it has no room for enjoyment. It has no room for enjoyment. The basic prohibition of society and the symbolic and the big other is a prohibition against enjoyment. The term for this, technically speaking, is jouissance. And I would just like to tell you this, Lacan is not suggesting here that the child in its bio-animalistic pure need somehow experienced jouissance. It did not. That's not jouissance. Whatever that pre-linguistic experience of the baby lizard on the rock animal, blah, 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 that's not jouissance. Jouissance is what is subtracted from the symbolic in order for its totalizing claim to cohere. This is why I use set theory to talk about this because it's the most precise and technical way to do it. If everything is packed, nothing has been left behind. What is this something that is nothing? You heard me ask earlier. This something that is nothing is a no thing a thing produced by the no that introduces the first cut that integrates the child into the symbolic. This no thing, what is prohibited is jouissance. You can think about this at the level of masturbation. Little kids, as Freud well knew, and very accurately so, are little polymorphous perverts. His use of perversion is not very technical here. He's just saying that there are these like constant masturbators. Little kids go with their hands wherever it feels good. They're not genitalized. They haven't been taught that the only place they can feel enjoyment of a sexual sort is in their swimsuit zone. They haven't heard that yet. It's been something else to them. That's not a jouissance. 
Jouissance only occurs as a struck out, subtracted entity from society. That's why you have to close the blinds. That's why you have to turn out the lights. That's why you have to take that picture of your grandma and put it face down on the dresser before you crawl into bed under the sheets. That's why it's private. That's why you don't wanna talk about it. That's why we're smiling right now because you know what we are talking about is off limits. It's private stuff. The reason why it's private is because it's fundamentally prohibited. The basic prohibition of society sounds like this. Enjoy as little as possible. Whatever it is that the symbolic is missing and thus rendered split or barred, its name is jouissance. Is Sam, is that the same as what you're, I don't know if this was last time we talked or if it was in this, anyway, uh, that the symbolic engenders the real? Yes, that is precisely what's going on here. We haven't discussed the real and frankly, it's not even in this essay very much. But for those of you who have dabbled in Lacan and those of you that have taken very seriously this construct of the real, note, the real wasn't there before the symbolic came up. The real designates all the shit around jouissance that the symbolic kicks out. That's the real. It's what the symbolic doesn't have a term for. And what Lacan is here asking is, what's the signifier that we use to mark those places in the symbolic where no signifiers appear? A signifier of the lack in the symbolic. There's no signifier for the real. Give me one second. I want you to sit with this for about five minutes. Don't ask why, five minutes. Propitious punctuation is what Lacan used to call it. Take five and sit with this issue of jouissance. It is the negative one. It's what's barred. Pleasure is okay, but jouissance, not allowed. That's the basic prohibition, the effect of prohibition of the no is to create this field of experience known as jouissance. And the final question of this essay, the question for us tomorrow that we're gonna end with tonight is how do you access that in a non-maladaptive way? How by still being good little subjects can we still enjoy a modicum of jouissance. I hesitate to even turn my camera back on. Part of what we're trying to get at here is a way of being in relation to the law and the symbolic. I'm not gonna mess around, I'll turn my camera back on. Part of what we're trying to get at here is a way of relating to the symbolic and the law that doesn't feel so damn constraining a way of being in society, a productive member of society and having a non-maladaptive relationship to enjoyment. That is what is at stake. Some of you have heard this from me before, but to traverse your fundamental fantasy, to get past 
all the questions and answers about what other people want and whether you're desirable enough to them and all that stuff is to create a small yet significant opening, an opportunity for something else. And it is not desire. It is not more of the same because desire only has those gears for, of, and as another. All fantasies are the same in that regard. But when you're with one of these expert others known as a psychoanalyst, and they're able to not just tell, but show you their ignorance, show you that they don't have the answers, you get these opportunities, these little five minute increments where it's just you. Now you all were here and you were talking and doing all that kind of stuff, which is cool, I get it. But the idea is to create these moments with the analyzand where you're just stone cold silent. We've heard about what to maybe do when the analyzand goes quiet. The real question is how do you introduce silence as an analyst into the analytic experience? What about your silence? It's the greatest expression of ignorance. Not only are you refusing to provide an answer, but you're refusing to say that even. You're not even saying you don't have an answer, which in itself is a kind of expression of knowledge. Think about how throughout today, I've also used this desire, this unbridled desire to tell you how many ways I just don't know about young or depth psychology or clinical practice or any of this stuff. Notice how I got off on that. Notice how I learned to enjoy sharing my ignorance with you. Why couldn't I have just been ignorant? Why did I have to tell you it all the time again and again today? Part of what makes the graph of desire so great is that you can always refer back to this map and note the ways that you slip up. This is as much, if not more so for analysts as it is for analyzands. So you, dear analysts, had the last five minutes and then I just took five more. And now we're done until tomorrow morning. Show up with questions, read hard. We're gonna start with that negative one. You thought you were done with math. Nah, baby, we're back in the math world. Negative one and then the square root of negative one. And remember, if it starts to get weird, if it starts to get uncomfortable, read it as poetry. If you wanna know what Lacan is doing with the square root of negative one, ask yourself what Chinese character it looks like. He was fluent in Chinese. This is as much a drawing, a sketch, nonsensical and otherwise, because what is the square root of negative one? It's an imaginary number that doesn't exist. That's his point. All right, poets, I'll see you bright and early tomorrow. We'll start with your questions and launch back into the text. Thanks for all your hard work today. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.